Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely, pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 159 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Chris Voss from The Record Company, I want to let you know that next week we're taking my video show, Cocktails in the War Room, on deployment. Cocktails in the War Room will be happening live from the Rising Eagle Public House on Main Street in Melrose, Massachusetts. I'm joining forces with the Regimental Spirit Company to help raise money for the Run to Home Base to benefit the Home Base program. The event goes from 6 to 9 p.m. and Cocktails in the War Room goes from 8 to 9 p.m. As always, you can watch it live on my official Facebook page or you can join me in person at the Rising Eagle Public House on Main Street in Melrose on Tuesday, June 27th from 6 to 9 p.m. For more info, you can just click the link in the show notes of this episode. Recently, I had a chance to go and see the band The Record Company open up for Rival Sons, and the band blew me away. After they played, I went up and talked to singer Chris Voss and asked him if he would come on my podcast, and he said yes. Which brings me to today's episode. Chris was sitting in his kitchen, breaking up his fighting cats and talking to me about their upcoming date at Red Rocks, his musical philosophies, the band's touring, his songwriting inspiration, his upbringing, what it was like growing up on a farm, the influence that Iggy Pop had on his musical career. We talked about mental health coming out of COVID, the advice his grandmother gave him, and we ran down some of his guitar greats. We also talked about heavy metal and the birth of rock and roll, the great debate between the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, visiting rock star graves, and so much more. The record company are releasing the first single from their upcoming new album this Friday on all digital streaming platforms. So allow me to introduce you to Chris Voss from The Record Company. What's going on, Chris? Oh, hey, how are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm good. I'm getting ready for a show at Red Rocks tomorrow. So uh, it's uh, just packing my bags and making sure all the guitars are have strings on them and getting them in their cases and, you know. The stuff you do when you're going to get on an airplane with stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I always ask um, whenever I talk to anyone in a touring band where they are, because most of the time they have no idea. So you got a little bit of a break and you're home at least at home. this minute. Yeah. yeah. So I'm in uh, Los Angeles 
right now. And when you're packing up guitars to fly to Red Rocks, um, mm-hmm. do you check those? Do you bring them on the plane? How does that work? Yeah, yeah, I, I check them. Um, you know, you get a TSA approved case. It's not the most glamorous side of the business, but it, you know, it's essential. Uh, you know, you will do backline sometimes, which means that like the guitars are there. You'll have someone else's like a company's guitars there waiting for you. But I like to bring as many of my own as I can, you know, because it's just familiarity and I know what they sound like. I know what they're going to do. Um, and uh, I just, I like, you know, having those, my, my own little darlings with me, but, uh, uh, but I can plan it. If it's got, as my, uh, as one of my friends said, or his teacher said to him when he was first starting out, it's like, does it have strings? Can you play it? Play it. You know, so I'll play it, whatever you have, but you know, with a show like Red Rocks, I really like to try and aim for the best possible gear, you know? To me, that would be such a fearful thing. I mean, I worry that they're going to lose my luggage all the time, and I don't have guitars. I talked to Pat Badger from Extreme. He says that he puts air tags in his cases when he travels. Do you do that? Yeah, I've just been uh, hipped to that, and I it could be on the agenda for today. Um, <laughs> I, our drummer Mark does that now, and uh, – it makes him feel better. I did have all my luggage get lost only once, but it was significant. I was overseas and I didn't see it for um, four months. Yeah. I had my luggage lost once only for a few days and it changed the way I pack my carry on. Oh, yeah. I, I always make sure that I have a change of clothes and like clean underwear and some toiletries <laughs> in my carry on. Whatever you need to have. Yeah, yeah, just in case, because those three days I was in Afghanistan and they lost my body armor and all my stuff. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. So that's just a, that's a different whole situation there. That's yeah. for sure. But they they were able to find it. It got lost at Heathrow, but I was able to track it down. Good. Good. But it did change the way that I that I packed luggage because I had no personal items in my carry on. It was just like broadcast equipment and stuff. Sure. So sure. I, I always worry about that. So with a guitar and especially with all the guitar players I talk to, they mm-hmm. seem to be such personal things. I'd say so. Yeah. Some some more than others. Like I have. I travel with a 1956 Fender Champ lap steel. That is a requirement. Now that I carry with me because that that's a that's an instrument that like i just can't replace that easily um it, they're out there but it's just not that easy plus it's got a uh my cats are having a little war over there we have a, new, <laughs> we, we have a two little playful girl cats so if you hear some squealing they're having a little wrestling match they love each other <laughs> but anyhow um yeah the uh uh so that i'll carry on but yeah everything else with guitars, I mean, I've had all my gear stolen. I've had it lost. I've had, you know, when I was a kid, there was a apartment fire when I was in college and burned everything I had. So it's like I've learned to have kind of a, unless it's an absolutely like precious, precious one, I try not to sweat it too much. But, uh, you know, there, the, there's no question there are certain ones you form a very strong connection with. You know what I mean? Didn't Steve Vai just get a guitar return that got stolen from him in the 80s? That Swiss cheese guitar? I've heard a couple of stories like that. Like uh, uh, Billy Corgan had one return that that got stolen on the Gish tour. 
like in Detroit when they were just starting out, you know, like early nineties. Um, who else was, there's been a couple of those, but those are always, that's gotta be a great, great feeling. Cause you, you know, uh, those guitars like were significant to these guys. So yeah. like you could tell that it was a heartbreaker to uh, have, what the heck are you guys doing over here? Can you hear that? <laughs> You're worried about your ear. I'm taking you with me for a second. Yeah, no worries. You got to break this up. Ladies, ladies, please, please. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. Try to be professional. Um, yeah. Mark so Tremonti was- from Alter Bridge and Creed told me oh. that like his most prized possession guitar that he got from his parents, it got stolen here in Boston. And he still has never gotten it back. And every time I have him on the show, I always ask if there's an update or whatever. So to me, I think, you know, especially as you go on in your musical career, um, I think the the DeLeo brothers talked about this. Like when a guitar gives you a hit song and all the memories that come along with it, you become attached to it and you don't want to get rid of it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are guitars hanging in my house here. I kind of go through eras uh, of what I want to play. Like I had a, a silver tone era, like at the beginning of the band, I have a couple of old silver tones. This K behind me here, it's from the sixties. You know, I had that sound for a while and then I moved to three thirty fives. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. But, um, so it, like, say if something were to happen to these ones that are in my home, I, it would be devastating, but you know, in the end I've, I've lost guitars and then I've lost friends and people not to get as to turn it that way, but perspective being what it is, it's, it's, I might get some blowback for saying this. It's just the guitar, man. I, the people are way more important. So I always try to keep things in that mindset, you know, um, uh, of, of what truly, truly matters. Uh, I think when I was uh, a little and I'm not discrediting anybody's feelings about that. I'm just saying like, that's how I view it. It's like, um, I mean, like, <laughs> and you gotta be able to play the show. I mean, you know, when, we, when I lost all my gear, I mean, we were playing overseas and the next day we were playing a festival called Boz Pop and we were playing in front of 8,000 people. And I didn't have any of my guitars, any of my guitar pedals, nothing. Except, you know, so I went up there with like pedals. I didn't even know what they were. Guitars, I had no idea. And I mean, I'm not going to tell you that I was like thrilled about that. But uh, we got the show done. You know, we're a rock and roll band. You know, plug in and play, man. And, you know, uh, the old they say it, it's an old country saying, but I, I, I've been adopted in rock and roll and punk too, which is three chords in the truth. Let's go. You know, it's just. It's not rocket science. Just play from your heart, give it all you got, and whatever the circumstances are. You know, I learned that watching uh, the the Stooges here at the Palladium and watching the chaos that Iggy Pop causes on stage and how that is just something that is woven into the show. He knocks everything over, they set it back up. He jumps into the crowd, he gets back on the stage. He invites half the crowd on the stage, they stop the show, they take them all off, and then they start over again. You know, and it's just like, that really called to me right and that really set my mindset as like the the singer and guitar player of the band um and we were a three piece so that's it i'm the singer and the guitar player so it's like um i just kind of always like this like hey create a little chaos up there have have some fun it be 
if you pull out a cable, plug it back in. It's just, you can't panic. You just cannot be uncomfortable up there. That's, that is, that is the only thing that I would say if people are curious about what it's like. That's the only real good piece of advice I have is if you're just starting out, don't be uncomfortable. Don't be scared. Be Find a way to be okay with being there because that's, that's, uh, uh, that's all it is. That's part of being at a live show. If you want it polished, listen to the record. You can make those moments by just flowing with them some of the best moments of the show, you know, that you can make that a moment that people recall that you recall as a performer. It's, it's uh reflects what we deal with in life, you know, every day, whether you're driving your car to work, whether you're dealing with whatever you're dealing with or whatever challenges are coming. And that's another rule I have. I don't look, I learned this in a very hard way over many years of trial and error. I kind of boiled it down to, I don't like to label things as bad or hard or difficult. I just prefer to look at things as a challenge because a challenge can be worked on. It can be met. Maybe it seems impossible, but you can progress, you know, and that made me a lot more curious and have a lot more fun in this whole process of creation. And it allowed me to go with the flow of what's happening at any given moment, be it on stage, off stage, wherever I am, practicing, writing, just living, you know, um, you receive a lot more. I've re- I receive a lot more inspiration that way. Um, and it's just, it, it just kind of takes the edge off of the feeling of, Oh my God, what's happening? Why is this happening? I just go, it's happening. I got to meet this. I got to meet it in the center of the ring and I'm just going to take it on. I'm just going to do it. You know, and I grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin, and that's another thing you learn back there, which is, yeah, this is a my little tractor farmer hat. It's not just hip for me. I I drove I drove this thing, uh, <laughs> but the, the uh, 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 that that's you know on the farm, they they have to be able to fix everything on that farm. They got to be able to do veterinary work. They got to be able to do horticultural work. They got to know how to use a welder. They got to know how to swing a hammer. They got to know. You can't call people in to do all these jobs. You give the farm away. I uh, I just married into a, a family from northern Wisconsin. And did you really? I nice. did. I did. Good for you. And I yeah. had a conversation recently with Dave Perner from Soul Asylum about um, mm. uh, cheese curds. Oh, yeah. Yes, I know very well. I know it very well. I never yeah, understood I mean- why they needed to be squeaky, and now I know why. Oh, yeah. Fresh squeak is fresh yeah <laughs> cheese curd is it's at its best it's not like other cheeses it's like you, the moment it's made it's kind of at its best the next couple once it cools down in those next couple hours so squeakier the better where where in wisconsin are you from i grew up uh, on a farm in southeast corner of wisconsin right on the border of racine and kenosha county um and uh, outside of a little town called burlington um which was the big city and by the big city it was 15 minutes away and i think it had you know i might get the population wrong but when i was a kid i don't think it was more than five or six or seven thousand people you know and that was the big city you know so it's been quite a change you know going from i've lived in each tier of 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 how we do what you can do you know kind of if you think about it i've i lived on a farm away from everybody 
Then I went to school in Burlington in high school. I went to a little private, like, family school, um, Catholic school. Jeez. When I was uh, a little kid, that like generations of my family. My family's been in Wisconsin farming in the same location since 1847. Wow. Yeah. So um, that, and then, and then I lived in Milwaukee for a while. So I went, you know, a little bit up and lived in more of a major city. And then I moved to LA. So I've gone from the farm to the small town, to the major city, to the super major city. And there is something in each of them that's special, you know? Um, and I don't mean that in a sappy way. I mean, it, there's, there's really a beauty in each, each possibility and there are challenges in each one. You I'm know? imagining you at the beginning of the welcome to the jungle video with the hay in your teeth and the plaid shirt, getting off the bus in LA being like, that. what the hell is going I on? That. I, as a, I remember the first time I saw that and I very much related to it um, as a, as a very young child, just being like, wow, you can do that. You know, these cats are going to, you guys are not going to get my rock and roll cred up a dog, you know, a dog if people will, but, <laughs> That's, uh, I've noticed people like kind of still have a thing. Well, I, I'll bring this up and I blame it on Geezer Butler. I call this question the Geezer question because mm-hmm. when I was interviewing Geezer Butler and we started talking about um, the cat rescue work that he does, Rob Halford, the same thing in LA that they fundraise for a, for a cat rescue. And Geezer Butler let it slip that he's got 13 cats and five dogs and when wow. I asked him how he keeps track of the names, he let it slip that him and his wife name all their pets after gangster rappers. <laughs> and now I have to ask everybody that comes on the show what their animal names are because Geezer Butler literally knocked me out of my chair when he started okay. listing the rappers that his cats and dogs are named after. Well, I'm not as badass as geezer butler okay <laughs> and i am married to a lady who's very much a lady and uh she's very uh zany and lovable character my wife uh and and so we we have to agree on these names but the one that just walked past is named after my grandma my italian grandma mafalda michelina cordini was her name but we'll shorten it it's just muffy that's her name and then we have mamakin named after yeah there you go the Aerosmith tune. And well, then uh, we are in Boston after all. So Mama Ken, she's uh she was a rescue. Uh and we have Bitsy. And I think my wife named her that because she was just a little run- little runty kitten when we found her, but she liked to nibble on you. So Aww. that was it. And then uh the most recent one, uh we have well, we were fostering this one because Muffy was kind of rambunctious and needed a friend. And we just said, well, we'll foster some kittens. So we did that. Uh, we are actually through an uh, organization in L.A. called Lux Paws because, you know, uh, there's a lot. Um, uh, uh, there's a lot of animals out there. And I try to, you know, we try to give as much as we can to the homeless. You know, that's a really a, a thing out here. Uh, and any charitable work that we can do, you know, have um, had my life touched by, by cancer, by, you know, uh, I've had friends leave because of not taking care of mental stuff and or drugs so i try to be positive and and we try my wife and i try to you know you know saint jude's or or etc etc so it's uh, i have a dear friend whose uh, son uh, unfortunately suffered an injury a head injury when he was just very young 
And uh, so he has an organization for kids who have had that challenge, which is like a really difficult thing. And so, you know, I think when you see a need, if you can do something that that was also something that I was taught, you know, it's like, if you have, if you have it within you, if you have the, a, a little bit of means, you know, to give a little extra, then, you know, try it if you can. And, you know, it's tough, tough, tough out there right now though for a lot of people. So, you know, go easy on yourself too. But yes, I, I love helping animals. I was raised to love animals. I respect them. But I also, again, love and respect people. Well, if you're going to grow up on a farm, the animals aren't just lovable companionship. They're family survival. Yeah, so, they're, they're part of the, the whole thing. The, yeah. Uh, they're, they're, they're the, they're it. <laughs> they're what you're getting up in the morning trying to make sure they do well all day long. Well, some of the things that you're talking about are definitely things that I think people thought of before, but I think coming out of COVID specifically and everything that's happened in the world in the last few years, you're not the first person that I've talked to that kind of has this, this view of the world and really valuing what is really important. And I think for a lot of us, having a lot of the things we love kind of taken away and paused for a while that now that the world is kind of opened back up again, a lot of people seem to be taking stock in what's important, uh, trying not to get worked up about things that they either can't control or, and also focusing their limited energy on the people and the things that actually make them happy. And if there's going to be anything, I guess, that's going to be positive coming out of what we've all been through in the last few years, I find myself doing the same thing that you're talking about, is just trying to make the world a little bit better of a place and trying to just be happy and not sweat the small stuff, which is, I'm Italian too, so there's there's one of the cats. Nobody wants to your cat butt. Get out of here. (laughs) Um. But I totally totally get what what you're saying. It's like... You know, we only have so much time on this rock. What are you what are you stressing about things that don't matter for? Yeah, I mean, um yeah. I, I think for me, like my experience, so we wrote a record during the pandemic and we put it out thinking, you know, and then it kind of doubled the the whole thing when we all thought, okay, maybe it's going to come to an end. It it continued. So that record kind of got st- put into the wash of that. So now we've done this new record and what I'm hearing on this record that we've just done. And what I've felt is, is a lot of uh, reflective, like, you know, healing, you know, and uh, I think that's good stuff. And you gotta be honest. You know, I, I was just talking to the we just on tour with rival sons and I was talking to uh, those guys and they just had their new album come out. And I said, you know, I just stopped them in the hall and I said, guys, Congratulations. I said, you play thousands of shows, but you only get a couple of records in your life. I hope you're having a great couple days. And they were just like really excited about their record and everything. And it was a great little moment between us. But that writing records and doing records takes some serious time. And for me in the, the pandemic, just to really quickly go through it, because I'm sure everybody would just love to move on. But I will say the thing that I learned and I think that really helped my perspective and made me grow as a writer, made me grow as a player, made me grow as a human. You know, I guess the first thing that you would say is I grew as a human and all those things benefit from it. 
uh, is that I realized at the beginning of the pandemic that from the age of about 12, 14, I processed a lot of my emotion through the experience of playing music with others uh, and playing shows. I started playing shows very young, 16, 17. Um, I first got on the radio uh, when I was still in high school. I just had a band. We made a recording. They started playing it in Milwaukee, and we thought we are going to thought 16, you know, you're walking down to high school. It's like, yeah, did you hear me on the radio? It's like, <laughs> you know, we were going places. We weren't going places, but it was still a great experience. But um, my point is there was an atrophied processing place in my heart that I didn't realize I needed to tend to um, because it, I could always take that surplus of emotion and uh, put it into the music. Also, I think a challenge that I've seen with a lot of artists is, you know, as singers and artists, you take your your job is to take and feel everything and put it out, you know, so you kind of are intentionally letting yourself or just naturally, some people just naturally were born that way, or you're curating it uh, to be better at it is to take what you're feeling all around you and then push it out and, and present it as a, a piece of work, you know, as You're a, a filter for it, you interpret right. it and change it and it comes out different. And at this end, if the, 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 this, the, this putting out gets clogged up or stopped, shut off valve and the, the pressure of everything still coming in. That was also something that was interesting to, to, to deal with because you're blowing up like a balloon. And a lot of artists, that I know that I've talked to since this, I, I found that to be a very common thing that we all had a different take on the same experience. But when you boil down what everybody was saying in every conversation I've had, that's kind of what it is. It's like, I didn't know what to do with all this stuff that I was feeling and you find a way. So I would say it, it'll let me grow that part of myself a little stronger, which when we came back, to the art when we came back to the records and making a record together and then now sh playing again i feel uh very different in, in a good way it, it's just uh very grateful i just last tour we just did i came home and i'm usually just exhausted like and i i got home and we had done like the back part of the tour was kind of brutal. We did like 12 shows in 13 days. I saw and, you on that run in Worcester. Yeah. That's where I met you. Yes. And yes. came up afterwards and was like, you guys, I had never seen you live before. You guys were so good. And I was Thank like, you. I got to get you on the show. I got to get you on the show. And for just so you know, from the fans perspective, mm -hmm. that we missed that cathartic release of being able to go and see you guys play. That... That we didn't realize how much we needed that experience of communing together as a rock community and going to a place together to experience these live shows together. And I can tell you from a fan perspective, being able to go back and see live music again has helped my mental health immensely. Oh, Have you noticed? I've noticed. That's really interesting. I appreciate you sharing that. I, I think it's like, it's just a spiritual thing. You know, music is, it does, Tom Petty said what? I don't know. I only know one true magic, he used to say, and that is music. It's There's no denying that it changes everything. It's a non-denominational house of worship for us to go to a concert surrounded by people that love the same thing, that yes. in that moment, that spontaneous anything could happen moment, 
Yes. We're all there at the exact same time. And you're with people, and I think this is more important now than ever, where you could be completely different in every other way when you walk out of that show. Absolutely. But in that moment, you're all singing your favorite song together. And we and, missed all of that connection. And that, that, I think, is a big part of why I think it was also so challenging. You know, it, this was our... This hopefully is the only event that of, you know, my, our generation, our collective generation, uh, you know, if you listen to like my grandparents used to talk about like, you know, you know, the war or, you know, World War Two and then, the, you know, all the eras of everything that happened in and where it's like a whole society, a whole world went through something. This was like a moment where I think we all we all have, we all did it together. We are, we're all in it. And I think that like, um, there was no choice for any of us, right? We were all, <laughs> we were all dealing with it. So I look at it as, um, that community. If you look back, I'm a big history buff and you look back through, uh, history, um, every society has valued art and music for a reason. It's because it's a reason that it's a part of ceremonies. It's the reason it's a part of, of, you know, if it, back all the way in the Roman and Egyptian days, when they put the new person up there, they didn't just put them up there. They put them up there with music and a, and a group of people witnessing it. And, you know, if you went to a, a service, whatever it was, whatever denomination, whatever, it usually almost always had some elements of song and music. And I think that, you know, when we in our, you know, even when we're doing music that doesn't necessarily, you know, isn't in that way uh, intentionally, it still retains that sacred center that draws us all together. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, you said just, I've said that to a few people. I'm like, what I love is they leave, leave your life at the door, bring yourself in, and take your memories and your feelings with you in the door with me and let's have an experience together. Cause I really don't see a divide so clearly between the crowd and the, and the artist, because even though they're obviously two different roles, they're participating in the same thing. And one does change what the other does. It, it, i can't tell you how many shows have you been at where you're like, oh, my God, the place was going crazy. The band played out of there. Those are relating to each other. Oh, yeah. If, if, if the band is putting out a ton of energy and everybody's sitting on their hands, the band is not going to be able to sustain the level, no matter how professional they are, of spiritual elevation if they're not receiving any feedback you know, so if the crowd gets crazy, the band gets crazier, the crowd gets crazier, the band gets crazier. And you everybody's been to a show where the band was done and the crowd wouldn't leave and the band comes back out and they're like, well, if you guys are into it, fuck it, let's go. Yeah, exactly, man. And those I think that's really, you know, there's a why do we get excited? It's this invisible element. Why do we get excited? There's a concert tomorrow. It's exciting. Why are we excited? Because it gives us a feeling you can't get anywhere else. It's an energy it's, exchange. It's a big feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And that's what we're here for. You know, why do you, why do you, you know, why do you call your mother on Mother's Day? Why do you pet your dog? Why do you, why do you go for a run? Why do you 
put on earphones. You're tr- why do you eat a good meal? You're trying to feel you're feeling and experiencing something. And it seems so rudimentary, but it, that was kind of the clarity that I found in this um this whole last couple of years was just kind of cherishing and seeing, choosing to see the, the, the good, uh, not ignoring the challenges of, of what's going on. No, but you can, but you can decide what you're going to focus on. My grandma always said that she said you, and she passed on this last tour and, uh, she was 98. She crushed life. It's all good. You know, she, she went on her own terms. She died on the farm. Like she always wanted to, and uh, with her, as my mother said, she died laying on her husband's side of the bed. You know, she she just surrounded by family. It's a beautiful. She wrung, beautiful. wrung everything out of life that she could. She, That's we should she, all be so lucky. Crushed. Yeah, she crushed it. But what she said, and I think a reason why she made it so far was she would always say to me, Christopher, you have. And she called me by my full name. Everybody they always do. She goes, Christopher, you have a choice how you look at things. We have a choice. And that's where I kind of got that. It's a challenge. It's not bad. It's a, you know, and it's not a, 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 you know, I don't know what you call it. I don't view these being talking about these things. I think when I grew up where I grew up, you didn't talk about these kinds of things. You just were like, Hey, I'm de- life is me. I'm in life. I'm working. I'm working. You know, and that's and I operated that way for a long time. And I, de- I decided coming out of this whole thing, there goes the kitten. I decided <laughs> this this entire interview has been. I love a, it. A catastrophe. I, lo- <laughs> I love it, though. <laughs> but, no, they're, they're, they're amazing. They make me laugh all day long. But uh, um, the uh, it's coming out of the pandemic. I just was and now experiencing it. I promised myself I'm like, I'm going to bring my freaking best to everything I do. I just had this conversation last night with my friends. I'm like, no more, no less. If you try too hard, you exhaust yourself, you get stressed. You, and if you don't try hard enough, you're not satisfied with your work. So what I'm talking about is I'm not just talking about like when you step to the guitar, I'm like, if I go to the grocery store, I say hello to the teller. How are you doing? You know, if I see a cart in the middle of the, of the grocery store lot, I push it into the thing. Little teeny, maybe I let someone go in traffic every once in a while. Maybe I just say, and what I'm finding is if you engage somebody with a smile, yeah, a lot of people might go "Eh," and just go, yeah. But I walk up to somebody and go, how are you doing today? You having a good day? Generally, they'll be like, "Eh, you know, I'm doing all right. But you can see it lights something. So that's really. We got to learn to be a little more human. Yeah, that's my promise to to, to everybody yeah. is that I that's what my goal is uh, to just to, to just be, you know, I was also taught people in glass houses don't throw stones. And I think that it's, you know, the space outside and around my ears contains a lot more knowledge than the space between. So I have a little respect for the smallness of myself, but I also have respect for myself. So I do. Ch- I, I see myself and forgive myself for having to learn sometimes the hard way, uh, making mistakes. And I can see to a degree, I don't think that at, for my choice, I don't want to hold everybody else to the standard of like, oh, you did this, or you did that. It's like, I don't like that, man. It's like, let, it, it's not, it, it, the finger gets pointed when you <laughs> point it that way, it gets pointed right back at yeah. you. It's like, learn, figure out who you are, 
And for me, it's like, that's, this is not what me telling. It's just what I think. It's like, I'm figuring out who I am as an artist and I'm going to fucking rock and I'm going to spread every, before every show, I text my wife the same thing. And now it's become a thing and I'll share it with you. Uh, it's pretty private, but it's, it's not, it's not like gonna, it's not anything weird. I just say, I'm about to go spread some joy and fire. And then that, and then I, I put my phone down, walk on stage, do what I just said, come back. And then I pick it up and I see that she had written back, you know, go, go have fun, go get them or whatever. But that's my little, that's my little way I set my mind. And I think that's what I, my mission is, is to spread some joy with a lot of fire in my heart. But that fire is not there to destroy anything. It's there to, to create something that I hope can heal me, help me and help others, you know, and take the, take people away from their problems for a few, because it's a beautiful gift. The audience is a beautiful gift to an artist. That is, I think that's another thing that's got to be seen. And I hope, and I think a lot of artists see it that way now, especially, but every time someone puts on your song and takes precious minutes out of their life to give your music a fucking chance, that's a gift. Don't, that's a gift that that human being gave you because you curated it, but have some respect for that. It could go on a million different ways. And they took a minute out of their life to listen to your song. If they come to the show, you that's an even greater gift. So don't waste it. You know, um, try and be there with them. And if you're tired, just say you're tired. You know, I've, but I, I always try to have, to, if I meet somebody who loves the music to, I hope um, I give them a, a, my full attention. That's my that's my intention. And sometimes you're just exhausted. You can't talk because you're just saying. And but just I still want to give them a smile and a pat on the back. And now I finally I can hug people. That's why we came out to the merch booth. That's how you yeah. learn that. You know, I went out to merch booth and we had what a thousand some odd people there, and it was like. I just was like, I, I want to, I want to see people. I want to yeah. see the people that are coming to conference. I want to talk to them. You know what I mean? It was great. It was well, you, a great experience. You talk about releasing that album that you wrote during the early stages of COVID. Mm-hmm. I just, I just talked to Wolfgang Van Halen and he, he released that first really record. Had. Huh? Yeah, he's a special guy. He really is. Really. I mean, not just, but, but just the way he handled the whole thing with his dad and how he's he's just a very it's no surprise i suppose that he would be a very deep and profound young man yeah he's he's very soft-spoken and and feels very kind of wise beyond his years if i can say that that's complete he's just very wise yeah you know i don't even know how old he is but i i yeah anyhow you were saying so so he he wrote that whole first record like before the pandemic and before his dad passed. Mm -hmm. And so we were talking about how an artist had kind of had to decide, am I going to reflect the craziness or am I going to create a distraction from the craziness for my fans? And what he said is this upcoming album that this second record is a lot heavier because Mm -hmm. it is, a reflection of everything that happened in his life since the first record. Sure. And 
it's like, it, you know, you are, are talking a lot about focusing on the good and all of that. So how did that first record at the early stages of COVID now differ from this record you guys said you just finished? Well, um, well, that's a really great question. Um, that's very interesting to hear too, just to say that, thank you for sharing that, uh, uh, Wolfgang Van Halen story, but, uh, big fan of his father, uh, obviously. Um, you play so, guitar, it's impossible for you not yeah, to be. He's, you know, he's one of the ones, you know, he's one of the, you know, Hendrix, Chuck Berry, you know, there's just, I'm not going to give the list because that always gets the guy in trouble, but he's one of the ones. Yeah. One it's not controversial nobody, to say no, names no, like Hendrix, Chuck Berry, argue and Eddie Van Halen. Halen like. Yeah, it's like these guys were the ones that after they played, it changed everything, you know. But anyhow, um, uh, how did the record change? Well, for one thing, you know, I think as an artist, you got you to gotta be honest. You got to explore where you're at. So on the record that we wrote, we wrote it right before the pandemic. We recorded it like kind of when you were allowed to do that again. Um, so it was kind of written a little bit in it, but a lot of it was already there. And um, but there definitely were elements that were it, it wasn't like we're at the end. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so no, when, when that album was recorded, nobody knew what was happening, what was going to happen. Nobody knew anything. You know, um, we were just at that point where it's like, OK, you know, you have to do these protocols and do all this stuff. So recorded it with uh, Dave Sardi, who was a really well-known and kind of legendary producer. And like, we went really like kind of, we explored a whole different sound for us. It was still rooted in the things that we love, rock and roll, you know, the, 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 the bluesy elements, the, the, the rootsy element of it, but like with the, with some teeth and uh, uh, modern spin on it, you know, and, um, that was a great feeling. It, it was really big. And Dave was our producer and it was awesome. And then after that, through the pandemic, we just kind of, our first record, we, the one that, you know, broke us into the whole thing and got us the Grammy nomination and all that stuff. We did that album completely ourselves uh, in our bass player's living room where he recorded it and he mixed it. So we had the crazy idea of like, I'm like, this is the fourth record. And I'm saying I'm like, but this was our collective conversation. I'm just sum summarizing it. We're a band. We do everything together. I, I am not, there is no Billy Corgan in this band. There is no like, you know. You're not I Trent am, Reznor. This is. I am not the, the, I am not the exclusive, you know, mind of the Or group. the aforementioned Wolfgang Van Halen, because right. Mammoth you know, is the it, same it, thing. It, I like being in a band, creating stuff together, you know, and Alex had a has a lot of great ideas and he is a very good songwriter so he came in with a lot of good ideas and as we were um discussing it and hearing the ideas we were like let's just do it at the living room again and I'm like let's let's go back to our roots man so we went from you know the last tour we did as a five-piece band to do this big sound and that was fun i liked it it was good but i love being a fucking three-piece man I love there's no room to hide. I've interviewed a lot of band members in a three piece band and they say, listen, if there's a four piece or a five piece, if you know, there, if somebody screws up or there's always a way to cover, but with a three piece, it's been described to me as like your ass is hanging out every night. Like 
buck you, naked in the breeze or yeah. whatever. I don't know if that's a good thing to say, but that's what that's what they used to say on the farm. Uh, so there you got your farmer colloquialism yeah. in today. Yeah, that that was the uh, but so we went back to that and and we held on to it and we believed in it. You know, it's like I grew up in Milwaukee, like in Wisconsin and then in Milwaukee. So like, I know like the biggest, one of the biggest bands that came out of Wisconsin was Violent Femmes, you know, and like they're the essential, that first record is the quintessential minimalism at its finest, you know, just punk rock. People go nuts at their shows, body passing, you know, and there's a snare drum and a, a big weird acoustic and it's like but it resonates so we wanted to do that again and the show you saw we were a three-piece and that's the way we're going to roll you know for the foreseeable future if not forever because we went around the whole thing we added a guy then we added another guy we made a bigger sound and a bigger sound and we loved it and it was great to experiment and then after it was all said and done we're like that was a lot of fun let's be a three-piece now let's fucking go let's make our own record on our own terms let's not have an outside voice of anybody. It's just the three of us again in the room. What have we learned? What have we experienced? What's your life about? What's my life about? What's the sound? What do we want? What excites us? Nobody else allowed. And it was awesome. When is this record coming out? Well, the first single is dropping on, uh, I believe it's June 23rd. Then there'll be another uh, song in the summertime. And then the full album will be out in the mid to late September time and then we're going to be touring through the summer and then we'll be adding dates in the fall and in the winter and into the next year and we'll be touring this record say after september for the next year 18 months or whatever and then we'll do it all over again rock and roll seems like it like rock and metal i'll kind of put it all under the same umbrella i love metal by the way first thing i ever learned how to play was seek and destroy by metallica yes i got the clip them all some i was in little Catholic grade school. And this kid came in with a Metallica shirt on uh, the, the, I believe it was the metal up your ass shirt. Oh, I'm sure they love that in school. Everybody what I mean, it caused this huge controversy. I, and I, as a little innocent farm boy, for some odd reason, there was just part of me. I was like, Oh yeah, I like that. That's cool. <laughs> you know, it's like that, that upsetting element, you know, he comes with a, then all of a sudden you have another kid there with the skull shirt and a Megadeth shirt and an Iron Maiden shirt. And everybody's like, what are our kids? What's happening to our children? You know, and it was, I'm like, we're rocking. That's what's happening. goddamn. But the, the, uh, uh, so I love metal. I just want to say that. I don't, didn't mean to interrupt no, you. No, I just, no. It wouldn't be obvious. I, I remember I wore, I wear, I remade the shirt, uh, the jacket that I had when I was a kid and, or that I wanted. And I put like, you know, I found an old, uh, 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 kill them all. And I put it on the back and I like put a little farm patch on the front for my dad. Stranger Things made that all cool again, too. Yes, it did. That was hilarious because I was like wearing this patch and I'm like, my wife's like, why are you wearing that? And then all of a sudden that happened. I'm like, well, it's all going to be fine now. Yep. (laughs) But but anyhow, what you were saying, I just it's not obvious when you hear a guy with a lap steel that I idolize Cliff Burton. No, like, but that's you know. that's what I wanted to talk about. So it seems like in this time of rock and metal that the music has been opened up to these different sounds. That's what I wanted to get to with you is that you've got the lap steel, the harmonica, the, like all of that in the music. And you go and look at a band like The Who, 
not the Roger Daltrey one, the Mongolian folk metal one, with all of these Mongolian traditional instruments plugged into Marshall stacks. You've got the guys from Apocalyptica that are playing cellos to heavy metal. Uh, Giovanni and the Hired Guns have got a tuba. Uh, Johannes Eckerstrom from Avatar is playing a trombone in the middle of the set. It seems like rock and metal, these doors have opened where all of these new instruments are being infused. And I bring it up because the clarinet player in me from high school in the marching band is waiting for clarinet to have its moment in the sun. <laughs> it could happen. I mean, you never know. You can. You, I've seen seen some pretty crazy stuff happen, you know. Uh, You've never seen those guys from The Who? Not that. No, oh. I haven't. And I, 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 you gotta, I'm always looking. I'll check it out. I appreciate they that. They play yeah. these traditional Mongolian string instruments. Talk about being afraid to lose your gear when you're traveling. Really? These things you can't get at Guitar Center. There's no, there's no substitute for, you know, whatever they're playing. Yeah. Yeah. But But it it does seem like rock is kind of finding new ways to make new sounds. That was one of the things I took from seeing you guys with Rival Sons was that that lap steel folded right in and it felt rock and roll. Thank you. Well, that was um, that was the idea. You know, I, I I'm inspired by others, but I want to have my own unique take on things. And if an instrument calls out to me, I want to use it. You know, so lap steel was something I got interested in as a kid because um, I heard Muddy Waters Hard Again record and Johnny Winter playing on it. And I was like, what the heck is that? You know, there was a I didn't it wasn't a lap steel. He was playing a dobro. But uh, here, by the way, say hello to my little guy here. Oh, look yep. at him. He's a curious little friend. But uh, um, anyhow, uh, yeah, and the harmonica with the harmonica, I was just like, when I got that sound together and singing through it and all that, and just bass drums and a harmonica and putting the harmonica through an amp. And, you know, what the sound I go for is to breathe fire like a dragon. That's what I want. The thing to sound like that's what it sounds sound. like on the receiving end i'll tell you well, as that's someone great. that's been in the crowd <laughs> yeah and it's like but i i it goes back to that 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 ethos of hey you know because people will come out and it's like there's a bass player there's a drummer and here comes a guy with a mic in his hand and a harmonica and i think uh i had somebody the other night at the end of the show she was like you know when you came out and there was no guitar i was like what the hell is about to happen here and then we played and she's like, she was like, that was cool. And then the guitar comes in and the lap steel and, the, you know, Neil Young said, keep them guessing. You know, he's like, change guitars, do stuff. You know, he was talking about his solo shows. So I took that into, it's like, all right, we're a three piece band. You have to have bass and drums. What can we add? You know, and this was something that Alex and Mark were very good at. It's like, okay, if I play this on an electric guitar, does it sound like something we've heard of? A bunch you know because that's really easy to slip into that and it's like what if i play it on a junkie acoustic what if i play it on a lap steel what if i play it with a harmonica and nothing else what if i and just finding ways to keep it interesting you know especially live like where it's like oh he's on a lap steel oh now they've got a you know harmonica oh there's a guitar i like guitar you know it's keep it moving you know and and keep it interesting uh, and it's not a shtick it's to serve the songs as we want them to be you know and i think that's really 
if it's honest, you know, you can have some Bavarian instruments because they're playing their guts out. And if you play your guts out, somebody's going to want to hear it. And that's, that's all I'll say. Harmonica is not an easy thing. I took one harmonica lesson um, live on the radio and there was a lot of talking of sucking and blowing. Steven Tyler gave me a harmonica lesson. (laughs) One of the highlights of my entire radio career, I still have the harmonica that he signed for me. But, but pardon the pun, but I sucked at it. It seems like something that taking lessons doesn't really work, that it's just something you just got to play until you get good at it or you quit. It's like, yeah, it's kind of a, 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 uh, like singing. Um, You have to find, you have to listen and find it, you know, because the aperture of everybody's mouth is different. So even if I was to tell you this, how you bend a note, well, the inside of your head is different than mine. So it's like it's you're going to participate with the instrument in a different way. So um and I don't play any, you know, I never played a woodwind, I never played any brass. So I don't know if that's accurate to those as well, but um that that's kind of the thing about it and that's why I love about it. It has a vocal quality. It's very you're kind of singing through it. You know what I mean? Um uh and uh same with the lap steel. There's no frets. So it's not like not to be two music schooly about it, but no, you, you know, get, get nerdy, go for it. Right. Well, everybody out, there's probably a lot of guitar players listen. So forgive me everybody for a second, but you know, a guitar, which, you know, it has those frets. So you have half steps and you can bend the string to get the, the tones between and have those swimming in and out. But what, but what people really tend to like about like, say a slide player, like Dwayne Allman is the vocal or Derek trucks is the vocal quality of it because you hit all those those in-between notes just like a human voice you don't ever quite hit it you know well Derek trucks hits it perfect but it's like you know you're you're kind of around the notes you're you're you, you've got that vibrato you're 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 shaking the note in and out of tune and blurring it into a more interesting uh in tune sound you know and uh i think that's why i gravitate towards the lap steel and towards harmonica and and I do try to play it with, with some gumption, you know, um, traditionally lap steel has been a, a, a country instrument or, you know, Hawaiian music. Uh, that was more of what it was traditionally for um, C6 tuning. And, uh, you know, and I play pedal steel, which is an E9 tuning that'll embarrass you really bad if you don't know where you're going with it. But I just dropped it into, uh, you know, a standard old, you know, blues dobro tuning like Stones tuning G, you know, or Muddy Waters use that tuning, or I'll drop it into a D major, E major, and you just got to know where your major third is, and uh, so you don't hit that when you want it to sound sad, and because uh, that's the happy note, and uh, I love it. Just play whatever you do, play it like you mean it. Is my philosophy. It's just like get in there, say something, get out. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'll phrase this question this way because I, I ask all the musicians that come on the show. It sounds like Metallica was this moment for you, but maybe it wasn't. So I have a theory about your musical upbringing, all of us, that there's the music you get gifted, that you get exposed to kind of unwillingly, the soundtrack to your childhood, I call it, that yeah. is just what everybody else was playing around you, whether it was your parents or your cool uncle or your older siblings. And then there's a day that you get exposed to something, a band, a song, a sound, an album, something. And from that moment on, 
your the music that you listen to now is your identity. So is Metallica that line in the sand for you? But then what was the soundtrack of your childhood before Metal Up Your Ass, if it was? <laughs> uh, the soundtrack of my childhood was fortunately for me a very good one. Um, my dad was a rock and roller, so he loved, you know, my dad liked Genesis. He liked the who, but the who, who, uh, Roger Daltrey's who, uh, Pete Townsend who. Uh, he liked uh, CCR, the boss, you know, Springsteen, uh, Fogarty, uh, all the classic stuff. The Stones loved the Stones. Now, my mom liked the Beatles and Motown. My grandpa Don was uh, the farming grandpa, and he would, you know, he was the first guy I ever saw playing anything. He played an accordion in front of me when I was, I can't even remember. I must have been three, but it's just lanced into my memory. Um, and he loved Johnny. He'd play, he'd sit down and he, you know, he got a little, omnicord instrument and he would play like johnny cash willie nelson and then like traditional music like stephen foster like cowboy songs you know so that was always great and then my grandpa joseph was a big music guy but he was italian 100 percent italian and he loved his crooners man he loved them and his two favorite singers though were nat king cole and patsy klein so that you know, so that, so I had a very well-rounded, so I wasn't necessarily like, I didn't have this call to rebel against it, but when I, when I heard something that had some fire to it, I I got really, I got into it, you know, like when I heard, like Metallica was a great example, I, I was just like that, and then I had to know, and then I, you know, like I said, it was a Cliff Mall video, was how I got exposed to them, and so then I'm like, well, who's this blonde guy? Oh, that's Dave Mustaine. He got thrown out of the band. Oh, that's a bummer. Oh, wait a minute. He's in another band. And then I'm listening to Megadeth. And then I'm listening. But I also, you know, um, I I also always loved like ZZ Top and, you know, anything that had a Zeppelin, anything that had Hendrix. Hendrix still is my all-time favorite guitar player, period, point blank. Like, he's my guy. I adore his playing and I, I adore a lot of playing, but if I have to, but you get asked that question, who's the guy that's my, if I have to say a name, that's the name I'm going to say, but, uh, and it's amazing, you know, the Beatles, the same thing. Like you're talking about influence in such a short amount of time. We didn't have Hendrix long, but everything no. was different because of him. The Beatles only made records for what? Seven and a half years, eight years and yeah. changed everything. Yeah. I, I've always asked, why is it the people at the beginning of something could, how can they be kind of almost the best at it? You know, it's like, how could the Beatles be <clears throat> one of the greatest bands of all time? And they were like one of the first super popular bands. And it's like, uh, I think it's because that's the way it had to be. Or yeah. there's none of this would have happened. It's like Beach Boys, the Beatles and the Stones and, the, you know, the Kinks. And it's just like all those bands are untouchably astounding, you know, and even if they're not your cup of tea, you still got to tip your hat. They're my cup of tea. But if it's like you're like, ah, I don't like that. I like this. It's like, cool. But you can't you can't diss on those bands. You, you can. But I'd be like, man, yeah, not. there would be no rock and roll without it. It's like same thing. Like when you talk about like I just watched a little Richard documentary. And there's no rock and roll without that, man. What a what a monster. Yeah. You know, it, it. how is that guy? How did that guy exist? How did Buddy Holly exist? Guy died at 22 and wrote 60 great songs, you know, 60. Like, 
great songs. Like just didn't have a bad song. Yeah. You know, it's like how did that, you know, how does Elvis happen? How does Muddy Waters happen? How does like, how do all these things happen? All these great artists in, in the blues, you look at like, that's my true love is like the, the electric blues artists like John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, uh, Hound Dog Taylor, um, you know, uh, stuff like that. Uh, Big Mama Thornton, um, you know, so why are they the greatest? Because they had to be, because that's how we got here, you know? And, and I think it's also like, Back in those days, there was nothing else to do. You couldn't do this. Well, and you know, so- Ian Hunter shed yeah, some, yeah. some light on this topic for me. I had him on the show a couple months ago, and he's a legend, right? Mata Hoople inspired so many people and all the music he's made since. And he talked about not knowing gave him freedom. Because he played the piano before he knew how to play it. And the songs he wrote, he's like, I would just write songs on the black notes because I thought that that's what you did. And then when I learned, then all of a sudden, I wouldn't think to just write notes on the black notes anymore because that's not how you do it. So I think what you're talking about is all of these artists that paved the way, there was no rule for them to break. There was, it was all experimentation and with limitless experimentation is going to be greatness. It, because you just don't know you're breaking rules. Right. Absolutely. And back then there was nothing more exciting to do with your time than to play. Yeah. So all these people, they just played all day long all the time because it was the most exciting. There wasn't videos on their phone and all this stuff we've got to distract us now. They just, it was like, I'm going over there and I'm playing guitar for eight hours. I'm going over there and playing my drums for eight hours. Oh, let's get together and play for eight hours. It's like, how many times have you heard the story of a band that it's like this band rehearsed 12 hours a day in a shack somewhere, you know, for four years and then came out with this record. It's like the 10,000 hour rule. Yeah. The Beatles were in Hamburg and like just, getting crushed four shows a day, six days a week for like two years, excuse me, two years. And yeah, you're, (laughs) you're going to find the best stuff. If you're, if you get, you know, you're going to get steel in your veins when you, when you, uh, when you do that. So I, you're right. It it is about that experimentation, but it wasn't even experimentation. They're breaking the rules just by existing. Yeah. You and Jay Buchanan must nerd out about blues so much backstage at shows when you guys play together yeah yeah we talk about a lot of stuff uh he and i are i like him a lot because he's very um he's very like philosophical guy and like he he wants to understand the meaning of things and what's behind it and loves us to tell stories and and like understand and I, I said it every night of the tour. I'm like, I do not know how he, that voice happens. I even told him that. I'm like, that voice, bro. And I'm like, it comes out hell? of his bone marrow. I'm like, how the hell do you do that? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, man, I really wish you could give me the secret to hit those high notes because good God almighty, man. Now talk about that guy sings with that's fire just coming out of his head. Like that, just a full body. Yeah. But he takes care of himself too. You know, that guy's, 
backs, he goes for a run every day. He's doing yoga. He's doing, you know, he does that stuff. And, you know, I think Mick Jagger retaught all of us. It's like, what does he do? Like five hours a day of physical training so he can do what he does at his age. That's yeah. Paul pretty- McCartney, the same thing. I mean, he was worried about his diet like decades before anybody else was even thinking about right. what they were eating. And, and if you're going to, I mean, if you're going to look at like a guy like Hendrix, who we, we had for a short time was brilliant and then gone. The other side of that pendulum is rock and roll. There's no expiration date for you. The audience is there. The capability of creating music and art is there. If you can still, the the fact that Keith Richards is still playing guitar should give all of us hope. Yeah, Keith. (laughs) I mean, Keith is, I ain't going to add anything to the, to the Keith Richards story today because it's all been said, but yeah, that, what a a phenomenal life that man has lived, you know? Exactly. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on all that. And you know, the, with the Hendrixes and stuff, I think that's the other side of it. You know, there were all those rules, but then, you know, I think it was, might've been, might've been Pete Townsend who said like, uh, we didn't know that this stuff was dangerous. You know, I, I don't know if it was him or if it was, you know, it was one of the, one of those guys from that era, you know, like why did you see all these people dropping like Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, like all these people, they just didn't, you know, why did some people make it and some people don't, I don't know, but it's like, you think like what you have to put your body through to, to have it give out at 26 years, 27 years old, you know, um, one thing I'll share here, uh, when I traveled to Europe, I went and I always wanted to, you know, one of the moments in my life that was like a really big moment when I was a child because we would get, you know, go to the video store. And at the time when I was a youngster, youngster, we didn't have internet in our area. So, um, we, you know, my whole thing was what happened on the radio, what happened through, it was kind of almost like I grew up in a little bit of a time warp, you know, uh, it's kind of a couple years behind where everything else was. Um, you know, if, if you got cable TV, we didn't get it for years till years after, if you got internet, we didn't get it, you know, till years after. So, um, remember getting the DVD of the doors movie and being really excited because my dad loved the doors and watching it. And I remember kind of like as a child being a little bit like put off, like not put off, but like disappointed. I was like, I wasn't expecting such a sad tale. And I now know, you know, uh, I, that there was, you know, there were embellishments and things, you know, I've studied Jim and, and the band. I mean, played with Robbie Krieger down here uh, a couple of years back it was actually the last gig I played before pandemic. <laughs> but um, so, you know, and got to sing five to one with him. And, wow. uh, and it was me, me and Jimmy Vivino and Robbie Krieger and, and uh, the drummer was, oh gosh, I'm blanking on his name, but he's Lenny Kravitz's drummer. And it was awesome. And, at the rehearsal actually was my favorite moment because I went and I did the doors alive version of five to one where he goes, all right. Okay. You know, that whole thing. And I, I went for it. I was like, I don't care if my vocal course is blast out of my head. I'm like, I'm standing next to Robbie Krieger and I'm, I'm going for it. And he like was, had a joyous expression. We had a really good exchange about it and we he, we talked about jim's voice and i was like it's deceptively he hits deceptively high notes because he's such a big voice 
deceptive how high his voice could get, how reckless too he was with it because he was so young, he didn't care yet. He didn't have time to care. And he was, you know, hammered half the time. So he just was wild. He was just a wild man. So I go over to France and it was my dream to go and see his, like one of my dreams, my room, my little rock. I've always wanted to do this too. And I, so I went and, you know, the bust isn't there anymore. They took that down years ago, but uh, it's, it's still there. And I remember looking at it and I did not expect this. I got hijacked by emotion and I started, and I'm not a big crying kind of guy, not because I'm ashamed to cry. It's just not something I do very often. And all of a sudden I started crying and I'm having trouble actually talking about it. Now, what are you doing? Look at that. Just walking across the thing. <laughs> we, knew we, needed a, we, we needed a break from yeah. the sad stuff. But so I started crying because it just hit me so fucking hard. I was like, what a waste. This is so unfair. I was like, and this guy has been gone for what, 40 years? Yeah. And I still could feel the tragedy of it, you know? And it's like, that's music, man. Yeah. You know, that's that, that guy's music hit me in my soul. And then here I am like, Oh, I'm going to go see Jim Moore. Oh, there's Jim Morrison's grave. Okay. Let's go walk up to it. Oh my God. I'm crying. I'd you had the I'm same saying? reaction. I, I went to Cornell's grave shortly after he died. I went to LA and <laughs> I, and I went to the cemetery because he, he'd been on the show so many times. Like, and I'm just sitting there and I I had a feeling I was going to get emotional, but I didn't expect to not be able to control it. Like it was just sobbing. I live a mile from there. Oh. And during the pandemic, one of the things that my, my wife and I would do is you could, that, that we were totally locked down. But I, we walked, we were allowed to go for walks. You know, you had to do the thing. I won't put everybody through the description. We all know what it was. But- so what one place we figured out that we could walk where there wasn't a lot of people was Hollywood Forever Cemetery. So I I saw that and it seemed it was kind of, you know, that's how bleak times were. It was like my highlight of my day was walking through a cemetery. Yeah. But it was like, you know, uh uh yeah, so I saw I've seen that that Chris's grave a hundred hundreds of times. And it's uh and he's right there next to Johnny. Johnny Ramone, Ramone yep. Yeah. And across from Toto, right? Yes. And uh, Dee Dee's in there, too. Yeah. yeah. I, every time yeah. I go to L.A., I try to go and see, like, the, the greats in those cemeteries. Like, I went and saw Dio and then Lemmy's oh. right across the way. So I went and saw Lemmy. And right. when I went to Texas, um, I went with a bunch of friends on motorcycles, and we went and saw Diamond Vinny. And, wow. And that was another time that I got really emotional because it's, it's almost like seeing the grave makes the part of your brain that was in denial accept the truth. Seeing someone's name in granite yeah. or in bronze, it's like, it's like you can't rationalize it anymore. I think it also, you know, these people, we don't have personal, except for in instances like what you're speaking, like with Chris, like where you actually got to have some relationship yeah. with him. Well, but for, for somebody me, like Jim Morrison, there was yeah, no... For me, like just a fan, I think there's an element of it that uh, it really brings you back to the idea. It's like these are people that spiritually and 
mentally just are in a very sacred place in your head and heart, you see them that way. You know, I don't see up until that moment, I didn't see anything about Jim Morrison. Even though I knew what had happened, it just did. The records were there. Right. That's what I thought about. And then you're standing there and you're like, holy crap, this guy lived and died. This is a human. And you know that. Yeah, but but it it makes it, it real. Yeah. And I think that's, that's all, you know, if that is not good stuff, but it's real stuff, you know, it's real stuff. And I think it's important to, um, you know, that's another thing I always say to, that is one of my credos about playing is very early on. I don't know where it came from. I just had this thing. I said it once and my buddy is like, you should remember that. He's like, remember that. So I, I like wrote it down on a bar napkin, stuck it in my pocket and memorized it. And now I, I think it all the time. It's kind of become a part of me, so I don't really have to think about it that much. But every time you play, every time you perform, is not one more time. It's one less. Oof. It's not one more. It's one less. So get the fuck up there and throw the hell down because it is one less. Yeah. Jerry Garcia played 2,400 shows, and then it was an end number. And – you know, there's, and you never and know when it's going to be your last that, one. You don't know when it's the last one. You don't. And I don't like to get too hung up in it, but I think it's important to remember that it's like, this is not infinite. This is a moment. Cherish it. Love it. Do something with it. With it. Take the challenge of that moment on. Because at some point, the human element will come into play and you will be in that position. And we never know. And you think about Chris Cornell. I remember I saw him live four or five times. It was watching the man perform. There's no way you could ever convince me that we'd be having this conversation at this Never. point. Never. Never. How many you know, times you say, oh, I'll see him next time? Yeah. One of my great regrets is a very, very, very young kid. Nirvana came through town. I was just a little too young to go. And uh, uh, I remember I said that out loud. I'm like, oh, it's okay. I'll get him next time, you know. Bam. You know, so yep. it's like, uh, I don't want to turn it, but I think this is all part of it, man. Like this goes back. I think, why is all this spiritual? Why is everything matter? Why? Because of this, because of what yeah. we're speaking of, you know, there's an, you know, the same, it can be said about anything you do that you love. So that's why I also think it's important to come in for me and try and do my very best at what I do and be forgiving of myself if I don't, because, you know, uh, better we'll do it again you know if i got another shot i'll do it again you know but if i can walk off stage and absolutely know that there was nothing more i could do i'm all right you know i walk off and feel like you know i've walked off being like god oh i blew it i've had that but then in it what calms me down i'm like did you do everything you could yes you did so you can't control that the amplifier blew up. You can't control that. Yeah, you forgot a word and it blew the. It, but then you have those nights where everything just goes and it falls in a line, and you just can't believe it. If you didn't have one and the other, you know. Yeah. So. Well, before I let you go, I have to ask you this question because I'm dying to hear your answer. So, every songwriter that comes on the show, I ask them my songwriting question. So this isn't a favorite song or favorite album question. This is a craft question. Can you give me an example of a song, any artist, any genre that's inconsequential 
that if you looked up songwriting in the dictionary, this would be a perfect example of songwriting. A song that you covet that you wish you wrote because it's perfectly crafted. Let it be. Let yeah. it be. It, it, it just, it's magnificent. And I mean, that's just the first one that popped into my mind because I've never been asked that, but that's the one that popped in my mind when you said it. It's just, it's perfection. It's emotional. It's beautiful. It's orchestral. It kind of rocks in a very strange way, you know, and, and, uh, but it doesn't rock you. It kind of rocks your inside, you know, your heart. Um, so yeah, I, that's just a, I don't, I can't see how you could poke a hole in that one. You know, the Beatles come up every episode Yeah, and people that, that don't like the Beatles, I don't understand them, but that I look at is like the greatest gift my mom ever gave me because they were her favorite and they're my favorite. And it's like kind of undeniable. Here's how I resolved it. See, my parents were, I'll, I'll close with this. Maybe this will help if anybody has ever had this argument with somebody. So in my household, we had us, my dad loved it. They came up in the era where you either liked the Beatles or the Stones. You know, you liked, you were with the good guys or you were with the, 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 the dangerous guys, you know? Yeah. And um, <laughs> so, you know, that was, uh, uh, my mom was a Beatle maniac. She's a Beatle maniac. She has all the old magazines, you know, still, and she had all the vinyls. And my dad loved the Stones. He was a Stones guy. He loved the Doors. You know, my mom did not like the Doors. They have just this one split in some areas where it's like my dad likes stuff and is rebellious and kind of goes against the grain. And my mom loves, like, beautiful, you know, bright music. Like, so this is how I will sum up how I think we can get over this Beatles Stones debate. If one man, <laughs> here's what I have to say: the Beatles are the greatest band of all time. The Stones are the greatest rock and roll band of all time. That's my presentation. Okay. That's how I have created some peace in my household. I'm like, look, Ma, Dad, they're both, it's because they still, and I'm like, Mom, there's no question the Beatles are the greatest band of all time. The Stones are the greatest rock and roll band of all time. I don't know if that makes sense to anybody else, but it worked for me. Are your parents still married? Yeah, 50 years. Then there you go. Then it worked. It worked. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. It was so great talking music with you. A lot of fun. I'm glad we connected. And uh, thanks for having me and keep an eye out for that new album. And, you know, thanks for what you do for bringing uh, so many great artists to an opportunity to speak in depth on some subjects that, you know, uh, that don't sometimes get covered in these kinds of interviews, which, you know, I'm all for whatever anybody wants to talk about. Coming up in radio, though, which is where I started. Those conversations would be in between commercials and stuff and technology now giving us the opportunity to, to have it long form as a podcast. I've learned so much about people that I thought I knew well, 
like friends that are musicians that I thought I knew well until we started going down some of these nerdy rabbit holes about music and songwriting and inspiration and family stuff, all the things that created the end product, which is you where you are in this point in your life. And, you know, technology kind of created this space for us. And I'm so grateful for it because this is all the good stuff. I agree. And I, I thank you for uh, inviting me, and it was my pleasure. Well, I can't wait till you guys are back in New England again. If people yeah. haven't gone and see you, go see the record company because you will not you will not leave disappointed for sure. Thank you for saying so, and uh, all the best to everybody out there, and thanks for your time. And have a great gig at Red Rocks. Going to go for it. <laughs> all right, we'll see you later, Chris. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. There he is, the one and only Chris Voss from The Record Company. Their new album is coming out later this year, but the first single is getting released to digital streaming platforms coming up this Friday. You can find Chris and The Record Company. Just check the links in the show notes of this episode. You'll also find all the Mistress Carrie links and the link to this episode's corresponding playlist. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast, featuring all my guest music and all the artists and songs that we referenced in the interview. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday. In about five minutes, I give you all your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment industry updates with the Sit Rep. And you can join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. And you can always hear me on the radio on the Mistress Carrie Show. And a reminder, Tuesday night, June 27th from 6 to 9, I'll be with the Regimental Spirit Company at Rising Eagle Public House on Main Street in Melrose, Massachusetts, raising money for the Run to Home Base to benefit the Home Base Program. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.